0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex. I'm a reporter here at TechCrunch and I am joined by the Friday crew. We have Natasha Moscarenes. Natasha, hello. Welcome back to the East Coast.
1: Oh my God. It is so good to be here. 10 degrees colder than San Francisco.
0: Yes. Somehow yes and sf was already too cold so welcome to the next couple of months of sadness but speaking of good weather though marianne austin texas i presume is 95 degrees and sunny
1: hello there are colors outside i'm so happy to be back
0: (laughs) san francisco only has two colors gray and grayer uh marianne though you were also in a a part of the world with some actual weather i hear it's lovely in austin though
2: yeah it was like 80 something yesterday and now we've dropped into the 60s which you know compared to where you are is still pretty good sorry alex
1: marianne i'm so happy to have you back i like truly love you and was so sad when you were gone but i'm so happy you're back
2: thank you i'm happy to be back
0: yeah it's nice to have the uh the full team actually chris one of our producers abandoned us today so we can't seem to get the full team together but we have most of it and that's good because there is so much to talk about kicking off with Open sea possibly becoming a decacorn Many thoughts about that. Um, we're gonna talk about funding rounds from a perspective. We have Facility and Just coming up, but really we're gonna talk about the pace at which some companies are raising successive rounds. It's kind of being jumped together, if you will. And then we have Land to Schools Rebrand. Natasha's gonna explain that doesn't why there's actually a bullish take, I think. And then Casper's going private. What does that mean for DTC companies? And we'll wrap up with a conversation on what it actually means to be a founder. But first, OpenSea. Marianne, in the intervening time since we've seen you, have you become a a bull on NFTs? No.
2: I'm still pretty skeptical. While they are cool, they're hot right now, um, I have my doubts about where NFTs will be in about a year or two. I was kind of shocked to see this OpenSea news, to be honest with you. I mean, $10 billion is insane.
0: It's a lot of money. I mean, I, I really do think, and I was actually posting on Twitter about this right before we hit record, but like to me, 10 billion is the new one billion in terms of startups reaching the upper echelon or the upper this it's the standout companies now with grammarly hitting 10 billion and so forth.
1: This is the kind of company we start wondering if it's gonna be going public soon, right? Like this is when the rumors begin. And just a year ago, OpenSea wasn't a name we even knew or really talked about.
0: No, 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 no. I mean really I think that it kind of hit our radar, if you will, when it raised a hundred million dollars in a series B this July, that put its valuation at one and a half billion. And at the time I was like hot dang, one and a half billion for an NFT marketplace man there must be a lot going on there and as it turns out as we kind of looked into the volumes quite a lot is going on so i pulled some data from dap radar a website that i use all the time because they have lots of funny little charts for me to look at and enjoy but according to dap radar data the company OpenSea did in the last 30 days about a billion and a half dollars worth of trading volume now why do we care about that number it's because they take a cut a two and a half percent cut in fact according to OpenSea's fee website before the show so that means Two and a half percent of one and a half billion dollars in the last thirty days is thirty-eight million dollars of revenue for Opensea wow. in a month. So suddenly at the $10 billion valuation, it's it's high, but it's not entirely based on fantasy and rainbows, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, and I also read that in August that volumes on the marketplace were top three billion dollars, which would be like seventy-six million for that month.
1: And I just to add some perspective, I stole this from an article, but Etsy handled roughly three billion in transaction volume across all of Q2 for OpenSea. That's one month. That's obviously very different kinds of products are being sold there, but I think that just was a big moment where I put it into perspective how big of a deal and how much money is happening.
0: So I want to point out that the information broke this. Our dear friend Kate Clark got the scoop, and she was a former co-host of the show. So um, shout out to Kate as always for her great work. Here's the other thing to talk about, though. Coinbase is moving into NFTs. I think Mark Andreessen is still on the Coinbase board. Andreessen, of course, led the OpenSea Series B back in July. Uh, What's stopping Coinbase from just launching its NFT products, setting the fees to zero, and undercutting the hell out of OpenSea, and therefore Essentially, tanking its other investment. I mean, like, surely there must be a price war coming in these marketplaces.
2: Yeah, and I'm also wondering, is there any potential for like M and A here? I feel like there is probably a benefit
1: to Coinbase being a partner to OpenSea versus trying to eat its lunch at this point. Just because Coinbase has so much, it needs to figure out about how to trade consistently on its platform and make sure it shows up for its users. And to your point, both companies seem like they've reached a big enough stage that I don't know if they would, if one of them would buy the other one.
2: It just seems odd, as we've talked about in the past, with this investor in common, right, for them to be doing such similar things.
0: I mean, yes, in the traditional venture mindset, but now that all these major VC funds are becoming essentially just kind of like asset managers, maybe it's, maybe this is just going to be the future because BlackRock owns stock in GM and Ford, you know, maybe... And Dresen can have, st- I mean, it's certainly going to change the founder relationship, I think, to a large degree.
1: Just to circle back on a Wednesday episode we did so long ago about fraud and crypto. And when OpenSea, if you guys remember, was being scrutinized for insider trading. Its head of product was buying NFTs that they that he knew was going to be positioned well within the platform and making money off of it. I think then I was a little worried that OpenSea had lost its most valuable asset, which was trust. And now it's kind of clear that that didn't have as big of an impact as we thought it did.
2: Not at all, it seems
0: like. You know, I wonder if the broader crypto, and I, this is not a diss, to be clear. It's going to sound like a diss, but it's meant in good faith. But like, I wonder if the broader crypto world are just a little bit more okay with scuzzy behavior than the rest of us like if that had happened at fidelity i would want someone to literally be put on a pike but in the crypto world everyone was like oh that's not very good and then they just went right back to trading the same assets on the same platforms it just didn't seem to have an impact
1: the argument for like transparency is so innate to crypto this wouldn't have happened if crypto wasn't as transparent as it is so it's kind of like we might be more aware of fraud that's happening as a result but we wouldn't have been as aware in a fidelity. That's kind of like an argument.
0: I don't know if it's a good one. <laughs> Natasha is going to be taking the uh, the the tech positive angle all day today, so get ready. <laughs> um, Very true. <laughs> we, we actually, we were supposed to spend one minute on OpenSea. Uh, we've stayed too long. So let's scoot on to our, our first major theme today, which is about funding rounds. And what we have seen in the last couple of quarters is a decrease in the time between rounds. Now, this has been going on for a long time, Marianne, but like it seems to have accelerated to the point in which We don't just see a company raising once in January and once in December, a company might raise in February, June, and October. And it's getting kind of bonkers, frankly.
2: There's a Brazilian company called Fastly that's raised four rounds over the past year. They have a really unique business model. They describe themselves as a social commerce marketplace. So they're trying to make it easier for lower income populations in Brazil who are largely unbanked or underbanked to purchase things online, uh, including produce and food. So they've developed this group buying model in like a gamified app. They'll deliver things to a a place so people don't have to have things shipped to them. They can just go pick it up. Seems to be doing very, very well. They've raised four rounds in the last year, totaling $366 million. And they just kept coming. So I was talking to this company from the Series A. And they were like, yeah, we've got the Series A. But hold on, because I think we might be raising some more money. Okay, I'll wait. And then it was like, well we're still raising um okay so anyway long story short they they kept raising so much money so close together they didn't even announce all the raises till this most recent one and now they're in talks i hear to raise yet another round that would value them at over a
0: billion dollars why don't we just go to a bank kick the gate down open the safe and just shove the whole company into the vault and close the door (laughs) (laughs)
1: done acquisition. I mean, it's such a different sort of fundraising environment than the one where we used to be worried if founders were not going to be focusing on the product because they were so busy fundraising. It seems like this was kind of something that was just happening to them and they were reacting to the market versus them going out to the market and trying to pitch their startup. Like, was there even a pitch deck involved? I don't know.
0: (laughs) Okay. So the the reason why these two companies fit together in our little group here isn't just because they raised very, very quickly. It's that they had another shared facet, another bit of shared DNA between them, which is incredibly quick revenue growth. And obviously you kind of presumed that was coming, but I want to tell you the scale of the growth that we're talking about. So sales volume at Fastly, the Sao uh, Paulo-based e-commerce gamification food group buying (laughs) thing, um, (laughs) saw its sales volume grow from, sorry, grow 43X from January through September. That's an insane amount of growth for a, a sub-year period and kind of goes to show why investors couldn't help themselves because if it's if it's doubling that quickly, you just keep writing checks, I think. And then in the case of Just, by the way, Just with two Ts, so it's Just, I think you have to say it with a little at the end there, they have seen their ARR rise 900% since September of 2020. And you always want to start up at the early stages to grow by, you know, roughly triple and then triple again and kind of double for a couple of years. 900% is insane. And that's the kind of growth that does lead to potentially outlier results, which means investors want to buy in early, et cetera. So don't expect your company to pull off these unless you're doing something like that. But we're seeing fast growth get rewarded, Marianne, to a degree that I think is uh, is still novel.
2: And there were others that that raised a couple of rounds in short times that we covered this week Imprint and other fintech. Christine wrote about high touch that raised three rounds in 12 months. But to your point, absolutely, the kind of growth that these companies are seeing is nothing short of astronomical.
1: Does it feel like this is a fintech specific phenomenon, this idea of like the windows between funding rounds getting shorter? Or like Alex, with with the tarps that you start to see in your inbox or that are pitching you, does it feel across all the sectors?
0: To me, it feels broader than fintech, but I think fintech is a good example because it's still a place where VCs are putting like, what, a third of all dollars in the last couple quarters, somewhere in there, a third to a quarter of all dollars are fintech dollars. And so to me, like, you know, I'm not surprised that we're seeing this pop up maybe most frequently in fintech, but I wouldn't say it's so segregated to that one niche.
1: I'm like really wondering like where the checks and balances will come to. Like, I don't even think it's necessarily that they need to stop raising so much more money, but where's all this alt capital that everyone's talking about? Where are those debt raises? I haven't seen any debt raises or bootstrapping announcements or anything like that recently.
0: Yes. People realize that venture capital is expensive for certain types of companies in certain moments. Like, you know, so why, why raise VC degree ARR? Fair enough. Right. But then VC got so cheap because other money flooded in. I wonder if that dampened the friction that was leading to people looking for other types of capital. This is just a hypothesis. I haven't run this by anybody, but just thinking out loud, why bother to do alt VC when VC is, is, you know, 80% off?
1: One follow up there is like when you say cheapen, it's like the incentives of of VC aren't going anywhere. So what do you think is getting more accessible about it? Because I always had this idea that people weren't taking on VC, not only because it was hard to access, but also it didn't make sense for their business.
0: I think we're still, and we're going to talk about Casper in a little bit. So we'll talk about the the limits of VC and, and kind of where money should and shouldn't go. But there's a lot of tech projects out there. And so I think there's going to be a lot of different approaches to this. But I mean, g- generally speaking, when you can sell shares at a higher price earlier, you limit dilution and you get more dollar for your equity. And so, you know, at, at some point, it probably just makes more sense to take on some dilution for an epic check versus taking on debt, which has, you know, covenants to it and other sorts of things that are a bit stiffer because debt is a more serious check than an equity investment from a VC, of which there's no recourse. You know, if, if you die, it's just gone. So that's my take. I, I don't know. But we do need to move on to a company that has raised, I think, nine figures, Natasha, which is the artist formerly known as Lambda School, I
1: guess. <laughs> Lambda School woke me up yesterday with news that it is rebranding to Bloom Institute of Technology, according to a blog post from the CEO, Austin Allred. You know, they had raised $122 in venture capital based off of land of school. And I would say were the the name most synonymous with the tech coding bootcamp movement. I knew them before I knew EdTech. So the change, I mean, I'm curious what both of your first reactions were before we unpack it. The name change itself was shocking
2: to me. Really? See, it wasn't that shocking to me because I feel like they've had so much negative publicity over the years that it reminded me of Facebook and its recent change to... Metaverse? Like, so isn't true. that the name? I forgot. Meta, yeah. Meta. Meta, just Meta, meta. yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> Whatever, you get the point.
0: Maybe they shook off the name Land of School because it was something associated with Red, and so they wanted to have a new one Evermore. I'm trying to make a Taylor Swift album name joke here, and it's not quite coming together.
1: Oh, my, I was like... I feel like I'm kind of following, but keep going.
0: We need more Taylor Swift content on here. <laughs> Marianne finished her sentence faster than I thought she was going to. And so I had to start <laughs> talking before I had finished the joke in my brain. I have a kind of
1: boring reason also for why it changed its name. You know, some sources have said that they recently settled a trademark lawsuit and they haven't disclosed much about it. But that name change is one of the reasons. I mean, sorry, the lawsuit is one of the reasons there was the name change. Are they benefiting from it due to the negative press about it. And the lawsuits against Lambda School as we know it, definitely. I think they also could in some world blame it on the lawsuit too.
0: Okay. But let's dig into just past the name change because there's more going on here. There's a change to how education is financed. And also there's a change, I think, to the leadership recently, and that came before this. So, Natasha, walk us through what's happened recently.
1: Yeah, so I have been feeling like Lambda School was due for a big announcement for a while because they had a restructuring in April and they laid off um, about 65 employees, was when Austin really publicly admitted that they've been working for years to make incentive-aligned education work, but it's been harder than they thought. So we knew something was going to happen. And now they're here with a new name, but also introducing an outcomes-based loan. Putting it as simply as I can, it's trying to allow students to take a loan with zero dollars upfront. And then if they aren't able to get a job after a year of searching, they will get 110% of their tuition refunded. Kind of a snappy way to say we believe so much in our education and the outcomes of it that we'll even pay you above what you originally paid if you don't get a job.
0: Now let's talk about the caveats, though, because there's an odd series of stipulations about how you can prove that you tried to get a job and failed, not due to your own laziness, but because the market decided it didn't want you.
1: Yeah. So students have to apply to 10 jobs, network with 10 professionals and post at least five GitHub contributions to their public profile per week for 46 of 52 weeks in a year. The people who sign up for coding boot camps part time or are pursuing um, alternative forms of education, I'm guessing also are balancing a lot of different jobs and different responsibilities. So that kind of commitment seems pretty immense was, was my first
0: read. What about you? Utterly precludes part-time education. I mean, Marianne, if you have a kid, if you have another job, I mean, just just doing 10 job applications, 10 net, whatever counts as a network with a professional and five GitHub contracts, that's like what, 60 hours a week? That's a
2: job in and of itself.
0: Yeah, if, if not more than one, frankly. 100%.
2: I think the only
1: positive that I will say from this change is that Lambda School is finally admitting in between the lines that ISAs, which are income share agreements, you don't pay for your tuition, but then when you get a job, you pay a percent of your income back until the tuition is paid. They're admitting that that didn't work. It didn't work the way that they wanted it to. And a lot of students were burned because of it. So I'm hoping in some way that them changing the way that they're allowing financing is assigned to other startups that are pursuing ISAs to maybe rethink the way that they try and offer alternative forms of financing?
0: You know, yes, to all of that. I think it's, I, I, I'm i disappointed ISAs didn't work because there is some version of reality in which they make a lot of sense and, and I like them. It just seems that whenever they kind of, whenever the rubber hits the road, it kind of like, flops. It's like when you read Marx for the first time, you're like, oh shit, what if we just shared? And then you look back at a history of communist governments and you're like, oh hard pass. No thanks. <laughs> this is not the jam. It turns out humans suck. Ah, oh, fair enough. Yeah, um, I
2: mean in theory ISAs do seem like they would make sense, right? Like yes. you would think so.
0: I mean, gosh, I mean like if you could have told me that I could have taken out an ISA on my tuition and not graduated with debt and paid, you know, 10% for five years I probably would have said yes to my school or something like that.
1: Yeah, I I think it also like it holds boot camps and institutions more accountable if you have an ISA, because then you're like, okay, listen, you're not going to get the money back if I'm not successful. Lambda School admitting that that didn't work, I think, shows how much the bar needs to be raised for boot camps. And so I'm hoping, again, being really optimistic, the show for some reason that their (laughs) rebrand is also a move towards getting to a place of future accreditation. It sounds like a college. It sounds like they're not going to build a college. I don't know, Marianne, what do you think?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to say. I, I don't know. Like I, I'm not sure, but I am interested to see you know how this works out for them and for students as well.
0: We're going to move on from Bit to something else, which is Casper. And guys, we are looking at the end of kind of Casper as we know it. The company that sold mattresses when public in early 2020 struggled, I would say, as a public company has decided to go private in a deal worth $6.90 per share in cash, or roughly a 94, 95% premium on its pre-announcement trading price. So a pretty stiff premium to take this company private. It feels like a different era of tech in which we were talking about all the different mattress companies that were raising large checks, but it seems that some of the DTC bets, Natasha, didn't quite end up the way investors had originally hoped.
1: No, I mean, I think people we're talking about this on Twitter a little bit and you too, I think investors finally realized that D2C is not going to give them recurring revenues at high margins and it's an entirely different kind of business model. So I think Casper going private isn't necessarily like Going to ruin funding for D2C brands, but I think it may be some of those checks and balances we were asking about earlier of like level setting, how much you should be raising and how much um, you should be growing and spending as a company, too.
2: Casper ran into a couple of challenges. One, it seems to have spent a lot on its physical brick and mortar stores. And I don't know how smart that was. And, and unfortunately for them, they went public right before the pandemic. You know, here in Austin, we have a v- pretty high end shopping area called The Domain, and Casper has a huge location there. And every time I walk by it, I'm like, how can they afford to keep things like this and do well? And then now I'm hearing this news and I'm like, oh, well, they're not doing well. D2C, if it's like online only, it's different. But when you start factoring in expensive leases and real estate, that changes it up some.
0: The, the thing is, normally we, we might say, hey, you know, a D2C company that's, that was well known, struggling in the public markets, going private, You know, probably bad news for DTC companies in general that have venture backing, and yet not really the case. We saw Allbirds go public. We saw Warby Parker go public recently. And today, maybe even actually as we record this, Sweetgreen has probably started to trade after pricing above its IPO range last night. So even though Casper seems to be the cautionary tale of the DTC world, companies that are in and around or near its business model... Are doing great and so investors don't seem to be skittish about this it doesn't seem to have had the effect we might have had because there seems to be just a a much broader kind of artery of optimism going through investing today than i think you can dent with one particular flop.
2: i do feel like mattresses is part of the problem like i feel that whole market is saturated and there's just so many companies selling mattresses casper at first was super unique but i feel like over time it's just less you know less so it feels less so in the eye of the consumer
1: yeah, I'm like wondering what the new rubric is for startups for C companies that want to go public. Like, what do they need to prove? What do what does Warby, Green, and Allbirds have in common that Casper didn't?
0: Frequency. I think it's frequency. Like, you know, you can buy a new pair of glasses every year. If, if, I mean, I, I've broken more pairs of glasses than I can possibly want to admit to. Concerts, drinking. Drinking at concerts, you know, it happens. And Sweet Queen, you can go to a salad five days a week, you know, and Allbirds, you can buy five pairs of their shoes in a year. You can just show up more. So the CAC, the customer acquisition cost, can be essentially cut up amongst much, many smaller or many more frequent purchases. I can't recall the last time I bought a mattress.
2: Yeah, excellent point, Alex. I mean, most people wait years before they in between buying mattresses. So that's like that's a really, really good point.
1: It will be interesting to see now like Casper isn't shutting down. It's going private. And so there is something that's truly changing there. Unlike Lambda, which is rebranding, I think Casper has really had a huge executive shakeup too that gives me hope that there's probably a lot more change happening than just the state of what its business sounds like. Like Philip Krim is stepped aside, you know, he was the co founder and now he's no longer part of the company in the same way. So I think we'll start to see some change there
0: so let's talk about co-founders and founders in general because this is our, our last topic of the day natasha you wrote a piece about a company well, compass which is a company we've all heard of that had a big kind of brouhaha about if someone was or was not a co-founder so before we talk about that in general uh run us through the uh, the skeleton of the news if you don't mind
1: Yeah. So for about seven years, Compass has been dealing with a lawsuit from an early member of its team, Avi Dorfman. So he, we've talked about him on the podcast before because he's currently the founder of Clearing, but he played a material role or so he argued in his lawsuit. He played a material role in Compass's early days in the founding of the company alongside Robert Refkin. So who Marianne, I know you did an awesome profile on at some point. So the long story short is he was part of the company. He ended up not joining them. And two years later, after Compass had grown its business and landed, I believe, a $320 million valuation, Avi filed a lawsuit against the company saying that he deserves a stake in the business and acknowledgement that he was part of the founding team. He felt like he was kind of screwed over in the early days when he was promised a bigger stake. And then when they gave him the job offer, this is why he originally declined the equity stake was, was really small. So this week we finally learned that Compass has settled with the, with the entrepreneur. We don't know how big the stake is, but we do know that they acknowledged that he was part of the founding team and kind of set that precedent that he did play a role.
0: Can you read the uh, the statement from the uh, the Compass spokesperson? Because there has never been a more begrudging use of English.
1: Oh my God, yes. It's, it's so funny how like in the court filings that I put in the story, The words are so much more powerful. It's like angry, emotion, feeling screwed over from both sides. And then now that a settlement's been reached, it's like the most buttoned up English I've ever heard. So this is what um, Compass spokesperson, when I reached out for comment, gave acknowledgement to Mr. Dorfman's work in the early days of Compass as a founding team member of the company that that was it. And then Avi said that I am pleased to have been recognized as a member of Compass's founding team and have to resolve this dispute in a manner that is satisfactory to both sides. I wish CEO Rob Refkin and the Compass community
2: only the best. How do we feel? <laughs> but Quick thought. Um, so he filed the lawsuit 2014. When was the company founded? 2012. And it was after this 300 and some million dollar valuation. So I think it's fairly clear that this is more about money than just being recognized as founder, because if he was really so concerned about being recognized as founder,
0: why would he wait two years to to file this lawsuit? It's a lot like someone like when some artist blows up, they're like, oh yeah, we used to date in high school. I know them. We're essentially besties. Look, I have their cell phone number. It's like, shut up. I, <laughs> and here's here's the thing that I want to get into about this. It's because we talk about founders a lot on the show because they matter and they often are the people that have the initial grit to kind of kickstart an idea. And they often hold the vision. And, you know, being a leader matters. It's a, it's a whole thing. Uh, but I think we over-DFI the phrase co-founder because it, it's, it's a little bit flexible. It depends on kind of how you want to define it. There's no set def of like, you must have been involved from the day of incorporation plus 180 days full time. Like there's no set thing. And so to me, founders is more just a phrase that we use to say early person who got outsized equity. And so at that point, it just seems like key employee. And so at that point, I wonder if we just don't even really need it to the same level that this kind of implies, like recognition for being a founder. I mean, fuck, that's just money, right?
2: It seems like we're doing too much here. Yeah. I feel like a founder could be someone that helped come up with the idea for a company and then that's it, right? Or a founder is someone who helped come up with idea, but also helped grow and build it to your point, Alex. But like why should they have the same title or as co-founder? Like if you just come up with an idea, like maybe there should be a new title for someone who just came up with an idea and then like didn't really have anything to do with building the company. Like why should you get the same quote unquote credit as a co-founder when, if all you did was help come up with an idea and not necessarily help build and grow a company?
1: Yeah. I think the claim to fame, that you get with being a founder matters more depending on who's getting that title. Like Avi obviously was able to raise money for a future venture-backed startup after Compass before the lawsuit was even settled. So he was doing great in that way. But I think that issue gets a lot more complicated when we talk about women or historically overlooked people who might often be left out of the table, even if their idea was the root of a successful business. So that's where I find the professionalism of getting a contract and saying you are a founder or you are not a founder matters because those creds matter the same way a Stanford degree still matters is like, And and, and I think it's very difficult. It's like a very perfect world magic contract sort of way to expect everyone would always have their titles to them. But that's kind of why I feel strongly about getting a founder title.
0: No, I I think that's a great rejoinder to what I said. And I think I'm going to change my perspective based on that because I think it's a good point that we shouldn't do away with the honorific just because it's occasionally misused, but maybe more to the point, we should be, be a little bit more careful about how we apply it and then also make sure that people who earn it don't not get it. And if you want to learn more about how women have been overlooked uh, throughout history, despite great uh, accomplishments, look up just like women who were on teams that got Nobel prizes and the women were excluded, for example, just to pick the first thing that comes to mind.
2: One of the first things I thought of when we read this article, and I think Chris brought it up too, is like, how was this not more spelled out, you know, in the beginning? Like, was this not formalized in the early days? You know, was there not some kind of contract or paperwork or legal documents that that named who founded the company. So I think that also, that brings up the point because there's sometimes startups just are, they are formed based on a conversation in a coffee shop or, or whatever. But at some point, at some point, you kind of have to formalize things. So one has to wonder like, what happened here?
0: It happens a lot though. You know, I mean, like, I think you're dead on, Mary. like, I'm curious about, the specific nuances to this, but like think about like Reggie Brown and the Snapchat thing. I mean, like remember the, how long that suit went on? It was it was messy. Um, and then of course there was the uh, the the brothers Winklevy and uh, Mark Zuckerberg and all all of that. And there's other examples. Those are the two that we just kind of jotted down in our notes because they came to mind first. But there's probably. If, there, if there's a couple at the very top of the pyramid, there's probably a lot more at the smaller scale down down the pike. So it probably happens rather often, I guess.
1: It's It's like a lesson to me writing the story and just like a reminder that building that co-founder relationship is so much harder than just like agreeing on a few things. Like you need to be very brutal with each other and very honest. I was talking to a founder who's part of YC and she was saying that you know before she got into YC, she they actually got rejected from another accelerator because she didn't have a good answer to who was the CEO of her company, the two co-founders. Like they didn't have a good enough answer for what was the difference between both of them. And I feel like that like summed it up pretty well. Of, like they want to kind of test you to know how good you are at saying what your role is within a company. That's insane. <laughs>
0: Of of course, the woman was dinged for not knowing who's the CEO, whereas Jack gets to be the CEO of two public companies at the same time and no one cares.
1: Go off. It's insane. Maybe she should grow a a very large
0: beard and then talk very strangely and then she'll get to have all the (laughs) jobs she wants. Walk barefoot
1: in San Francisco for one day, won't (laughs)
0: you? We're going to leave it there, but quickly before we go, next week is a holiday week in America, and that means that the equity crew is going to slow down, but we are not going to leave you bereft. We will have the normal Monday show early, early. We will have a Wednesday episode out that we're already compiling, and it looks very, very good. And then we have a little treat for you over the actual Thanksgiving kind of break. So if you're not in the US and you're not celebrating get fat and take a nap day, well, we'll see you on the other side of that, but we will keep you entertained as best we can. And then guys, after that, it's kind of December which is the end of the year. So we're kind of getting into like prediction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, if, if you don't know this tradition, every year on Equity in December, usually in the last week of the year, we put out an episode of predictions that are usually wrong by what? February 15th, give or take? Somewhere in there. Yeah, it's about probably. six weeks for us to be proven wrong. Uh, but it's good fun. So we, we're kind of getting into the, the hopeful news slowdown. So if the show changes a little bit, that's what's up. But we will be back uh, to completely normal programming on the 1st of January, give or take. So don't worry if things seem a little bit different. We're just kind of in that part of the year. So Mary Natasha, uh, I'm glad you guys are healthy. Marianne, great to have you back. Natasha, I'm glad your flight was good. And uh equity's back Monday. We'll see you then. Bye.